AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Stan, talk to us about uh, the story where there is a Microsoft's private GitHub which was uh, exposed and folks got access to some sensitive information there. That's intriguing to think about, you know, private GitHubs being attacked here. Yeah. Uh, so this story actually caught my attention. I, I read it in about three different blogs. Um, and the, like you said, Bindu, the, the headline caught my attention. Microsoft's private GitHub repo has been exposed by a hacker or something like that. Um, so um, once I started reading deeper into it, I kind of saw um, that it wasn't a, a, as bad as, as kind of some of the headlines made it seem. Uh, so what actually happened is uh, one specific, you know, Microsoft employee uh, who had a GitHub account uh, somehow had it compromised. Um, and within that GitHub account of that employee, uh, there was uh, about 500 gigabytes worth of source code files or different, uh, you know, information that the hacker was able to download. Um, and what's interesting about the story is basically the hacker had reached out to these different, um, you know, blog outlets um, and, and mentioned this to them and said, hey, I have the story. Uh, and while he was doing that, while he or she was doing that, they, they basically said, uh, I was going to sell this 500 gigabytes of data. But then I just decided to release it. So they released about a gigabyte of it. Different security um, researchers kind of took a look at it. Um, and what they were able to ascertain is that it probably wasn't a lot of Microsoft proprietary information in there. What it seemed to be is, you know, like this one employee's account where maybe they were collaborating on different open source projects out there. And uh, basically, uh, you know, had some kind of data there and uh, things like that, but it didn't seem to be like it was you know, related to Microsoft in, in particular. But as I was reading the story, a couple of things jumped out at me, which I think you'll find interesting as well. From the different blogs I was reading about it, uh, it seemed like employees from Microsoft were commenting on this issue uh, with some employees, you know, saying on Twitter that that leak was fake or false, while other employees were verifying it, and then some employees were going off the record, talking to these different, uh, uh, you know, news outlets and, and kind of giving them the background scoop, uh, which was intriguing to me because it's basically uh, it, there was this opportunity to create kind of. Uh, you know, potential for misinformation. I know like um, security teams in general, um, they kind of uh, have to investigate these claims uh, often. And sometimes it could be a little bit um, maybe troublesome if different employees are, are kind of putting um, a story out there that may or may not be true, or they may or may not have all of the information. Um, so I thought from a PR perspective, it was kind of interesting how uh, you know, the situation was approached, how different people at different times, uh, you know, kind of commented publicly about this before it was even verified by Microsoft. You know, ultimately they did verify that there was this one employee and their GitHub account, you know, did seem to be compromised. Of course, um, they, you know, locked down the access. Uh, so a very interesting story. It made me think of other things, uh, uh, you know, yeah. as, it, as it has to do with GitHub. Um, so for example, like, what should a company do uh, if 
one of their employees' GitHub repo is compromised. And I just kind of started writing down a little checklist of things that, you know, I could think of. Uh, and one of them was you definitely want to, you know, regardless of if it's um, accurate, the reporting out there or not, you definitely want to take this kind of claim seriously. You do want to investigate them. And I think one of the things you definitely want to investigate is what is in that repo? I mean, source code obviously can be uh, intellectual pro uh, property, but once it's out, it's out. Well, the things you do want to uh, be aware of is are there any sensitive um, configurations inside of the repo? Um, so is there anything uh, that has to do with how your you know, private infrastructure is set up that would give somebody access uh, to your internal systems? Are there any API keys that are hard-coded that you thought were private that probably shouldn't have been in the versioning system? Um, and anything like any passwords that are hard-coded and things like that. And then finally, you know, as you think about securing your employees' um, GitHub accounts, um, you know, there are two-factor authentication options. So you should probably consider if your company has uh, a policy about how, uh, what kind of authentication um, you require uh, for this, you know, for the information uh, that's uploaded there. Do you want people to have uh, to, you know, they must use two-factor authentication in order to upload files to GitHub, uh, or is a password enough? And if a password is enough, you know, what's the policy on that? How do you audit that? Uh, what kinds of things that you're thinking? And of course, just like in this story, I think for me personally, you know, besides this uh, potential, you know, it, it had a, a negative probably uh, connotation for Microsoft, like potentially, you know, there's some sort of source code might have been released, uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, it was just this one employee. So from a PR perspective, you know, how do you handle these kinds of things uh, for your company uh, to make sure that you, uh, you know, you explain exactly what happened, you're super transparent, uh, at the same time, you don't let, you know, misinformation uh, get, yeah. uh, kind of go, uh, you know, go and start spreading uh, about what's, yeah. what, what the real facts are. Yeah, and you make a great point there because what we see as part of consulting across our customer base is whether you're large or small, breach response involves communication, right? And it is very important that you hone that down before a crisis occurs. And whether it is a perceived breach or really it happened, reputational damage is definitely going to, you know, happen to you whether you're large or small. The headline itself is catchy, so you, you know, sort of are in intrigued by, wow, this happened to Microsoft. And from what we know, it is one employee, right? It also begs the question in terms of security awareness across employees about what type of access, you know, they have, as well as what type of security policies are in place today to prevent something like this from happening large scale. Today, it's one employee, but we don't know about others using it, right? And then depends on what type of information you put out there. Same thing applies to public clouds, right? We see a lot of organizations getting into public cloud we see developers you know starting to stand up instances it again goes back to that one breach one exposure of data you may not consider it you know your ip you may not consider that information to be valuable but for a malicious actor that could be right and what can you do with that information so i think you know the title of this article plus you know your commentary is very helpful because we do see that across customers you know in different verticals as well as sizes the article is interesting. There's an interesting part of it. And I think being able to have a good PR and have somebody to come to the front of the company and explain the breach is a whole job on its own. Like to be able to explain something to the public in a way where you're not giving away too much info, but 
at the same time you're giving them enough to say, hey, look, it's under control or it's not. They did mention that this, this breach did not have any information from any major Microsoft projects, um, which could mean that, yeah, maybe there are some independent teams working on some minor projects that are not very front-facing to the company, maybe for internal use. Um, so what I think goes back to what you said, Stan, like you, you have to be careful what's being put out there, because even if it's not explicit to something that brings money into the company or may release personal information, there may be some keys that, that these uh, hackers or bit actors can take out of that data. Like, for instance, they can probably, if, there's a, if they're trying to reach a server through one of these, you know, one of these, they're making a call to a server through one of these non-major applications, maybe they can use that server name and try to say, okay, we can kind of figure out how their naming convention works. Uh, maybe we can hold on to this for a while and search GitHub for anything similar to that and kind of branch out from there, right? Um, so I think even though nothing major was revealed, it is a big deal. It is something that Microsoft should look at. It's a big company. I mean, just like AT&T, it's huge. It's hard to control everybody. People are going to dump data into repos. You know, it's just easy. Um, but uh, I do think this story has a lot of meat in it that, that the, the PR put a good enough spin on it to say it's okay, nothing major was released, but I still think there's concern and they really should take a deep look into it and um, address everything, including what you said, rolling the credentials for any, any credits that were left in there, they should reset and do all the basic housekeeping. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting, uh, tough to control type of situation. Yes, definitely I think it's important. The one takeaway for me from the story is about I guess the PR and making sure your employees get the type of training necessary to know who to refer requests for information uh, that come from abroad or from news outlets and things like that. So you do have one part of the company, you know, explaining the facts of the situation rather than different employees kind of offering their ideas as oh, to yeah. what might have happened, because <laughs> that could be that, that could present a, a challenge later and you know with with serious breaches uh, and things like that there are also notification requirements so if different people say different things that are inaccurate it could actually be a liability for the company as well um so definitely i, I don't know for some reason that was like the one thing that jumped out at me more usually i'm yeah. like hey what was in the data dump or what was in there but for some reason the fact that so many of the blogs mentioned employees who talked to them, you know, off the record, on the record, on Twitter. It just made me think, wow, that sounds a little bit unmanageable. And um, it definitely one of the key areas probably for uh, the company uh, or all companies really uh, to consider. Yeah, and that's yeah. a great takeaway, right? Uh, you know, given the crisis mode that we are in right now, it's a good timing for all of us to check our incident response plans and really think about the communication process, especially given the timing of, you know, cybercrime and how rampant it is now. You're going to see more and more of this, right? So as an employee who is working remotely, when you see information like this, do you comment on it? You know, typically you don't comment on it. There should be one single source of authority that is communicating all with all external communications even internally should you be really talking about this event uh, or an incident you know to the point where there is going to be a spread of misinformation so i think communication processes should be reviewed as with respect to the incident response plan that you have in place currently and really think about it 
in times of crisis, in times of, you know, sort of remote working as a distributed workforce, how would that plan work out in terms of communications? Yep. Yeah, you need good protocol yep. in the beginning. Hey, Bindu, looks like uh, Sphinx malware is back and you have a pretty interesting article about that. Yeah, George. So, you know, what is old is new again, right? So with reference to the Sphinx malware, what we are seeing is, I believe we covered it on Threat Track with John Hugaboom probably late March. And we are seeing this malware continuously sort of being updated and given new forms, you know, to be able to target specific verticals. In this case, it is targeted within the US, North America specifically, in terms of banking, as well as Canada and Australia. So what I found interesting is, you know, we talk about cyber risk and financial fraud, you know, given COVID-19, we've seen that crisis definitely fuels cyber crime, and we've seen a huge huge uptick in all of the, you know, mal-spam activity that we're seeing uh, to consider, you know, uh, a malware that's been out uh, for years now that is, you know, sort of getting a revival and to think about the simplicity of how it's getting executed. The carrier in itself is a password protected malicious document. It's dubbed COVID-19 relief.doc. It's sent to users through a phishing attempt. It's claiming to gather information about relief payments that is being offered by the government. Once open, it's enabling macros, it's targeting the computer at, of the end user, and it's really infecting them with the banking Trojan. The fact that today you have a malware that has been around, I believe in the underground world, it started off with a $500 you know, bid for it, and it's constantly being tweaked to be used maliciously targeted at financial fraud. Um, it, it made me think about, you know, we talk about malware, we talk about phishing attempts, we talk about this constant, um, you know, increase in all of these attempts. We know that security awareness and training is important, uh, especially in certain verticals such as financial services. But we also have to think about the cyber crime as a monetized industry is constantly going to make those updates, constantly going to reuse malware. So you not only need to have you know, technology controls, you also need to have the awareness as an end user today, where if you are accepting and opening such documents and this malware is basically using injections into your web browser and taking you to sites where you are, you know, sort of it's opening up forms where you're putting in sensitive information and it's sort of silently in the background, you know, wanting to avoid all of the security tools by, you know, really coming up with evolutionary processes associated with this malware, you start to think about, you know, as a security team, you have to constantly be on the watch and make sure, you know, things like that don't get to your end user. So you need to have those technological controls to be able to avoid, you know, this type of email getting to a user's inbox. But at the same time, you really have to think about how, you know, the criminal industry is just tweaking things that have existed before and making you know, the exploits available so that more and more folks are using this to, you know, gain uh, credentials and eventually gain money from individuals. So I thought, you know, it's, it, uh, it's, it's interesting that it's targeting banks, it's been around, but it's not going away. So. You know, it's, uh, that is interesting. You know, we often talk about APT as an advanced persistent threat, which is like considered nation states and things like that. But crimeware is just as much of a persistent threat 
uh, as any of the other, you know, uh, of these nation-state actors out there. Uh, these people, these adversaries, they never really give up. Uh, they keep modifying their scams uh, to reflect, like, news. I mean, they might, you know, today it might be Sphinx malware, tomorrow it might be, you know, TrickBot or something else. They're always using that, but they are relentless um, in, in targeting individuals, and it's really on every company really has to think about that, how their employees um, get trained to recognize these things and making sure they really have a good um, uh, policy uh, for um, doing defense in depth on, on the assets that they control. Uh, yeah, really interesting. I I'm, uh, continue to be, I guess, I guess amazed is the wrong word, but I guess amazed by the adversaries and their relentlessness. Um, they're really, really good at keeping up to date with all the different, uh, you know, uh, news events out there and really targeting people uh, based on the news stories out there. Yeah, I'm amazed at the transport mechanism uh, that's just driving under all of this malware that's being delivered. And even on my story, I mean, it's it's amazing how much what foothold they can grab with an email and an attachment. Um, and there's so much, there is tons of awareness out there. There are tons of examples. I mean, they are getting better and better at crafting these emails and crafting documents. Um, but with, with, yeah, with all the awareness that we have out there, um, it's amazing how that mechanism just lives, thrives, keeps pushing through and that there's so many people out there that even if like 1% of the emails they send get through, it's enough. I yeah. mean, it's enough for them. Um, and like Stan yeah. said, these things will persist. Um, if you don't have good endpoint protection and you don't clean the registry, they'll sit in, in the endpoint and, and worm out too if, if you're on a network, on an enterprise. Um, so this is always what, what amazes me uh, on this landscape is that the email and the attachments and links just yeah, and you know the Incredible. fact that this malware achieves that persistence, right? By adding that run key to the Windows registry, and it also you know comes in two different formats. It's not only an executable file; it's also a DLL. So you know yeah. it's it's not going to go away, yeah. right? You know, so the fact that they are tweaking all these mechanisms and adding modifications, a new set of RC4 keys, you know, a different command and control server, you know, making the bot you know injection happen, you know, it really sort of begs the question that you know if the malicious actors are constantly ramping up, security teams have to keep up, right? So which means that you have to have an adaptable, you know, defense strategy if you are a security team within an organization to be able to keep up with this, uh, you know, threat landscape. And when you, you know, read research data and you think about cybercrime growing up, uh, going up and you look at, you know, these, um, you know, phishing attempts rising, you start to think how easy it is for the malicious actor to change things, whereas it is really tough for a security team to keep up. Yeah, I mean, and Stan said it, like it, you, you need defense in depth. And uh, even with that, even with the proper email controls, the proper endpoint controls, they'll just flip it one day, you know, change a, change a key, change something in the code um, to, to kind of get past any signatures that you have. And if you're not looking for behavior, it's, yeah, it's an easy yeah. one for them. Uh, so it's very interesting. Great, thank you. Whack-a-mole, pretty much. So, George, I was actually excited to see uh, that you have a story about Anubis because just last night I was asked to analyze the malware. So I hope uh, I hope to learn something new here. So, yeah, Anubis is back. Um, they've been around for a couple of years now. Um, and it looks like, uh, while this is a small update, I think it's pretty pretty cool, pretty wild that they've gotten to this point. 
Um, so, so they added a little feature in their in their malware, um, and they use a control panel. Once they've once they've compromised the device, um, like you know, then they have a control panel that they can monitor the device with and perform certain actions and pull certain data from it. And this specific uh, update. What it's doing is it's adding a small eyeball icon in the control panel, and it monitors the user's Android device, and it looks for their eye contact on the screen. So what, what the researchers are assuming this does is if the, if the person, the admin who's behind the control panel notices that the user is looking at the phone or looking at the device, they won't perform any actions. They don't want to kind of give themselves away. So they're kind of like, oh, wait, somebody's looking at the device. Let's not do anything. Stand down. Once the device is down or not being used, then we can start performing our injection or whatever um, front they, they're doing. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool to see that the first thing I thought of was, oh, wow, they're going to turn the camera on and take some pictures. But, you know, that's old, old hack. Um, but the fact that they don't even care about the video, they just want to make sure that they can get away with what they're doing by making sure you're not, you know, anywhere involved. Um, you know, you're not noticing anything strange where you say, oh, my God, you know, i got to wipe my phone or look for this app. You know, to me, so Anubis is, a, is, a, is an Android Trojan. So, right, you get it on your phone. And it's amazing to me to see how the adversaries have transitioned from, like, Windows Trojans, uh, right? The, yeah. That's the, yester, the Trojan of the yesteryear, even though we just talked about it. You know, they're still here. And, and they're really, uh, I guess, customizing the Trojan to the operating environment they're in. And they're thinking of kind of, again, I hate to use the word ingenious, but kind of ingenious ways yeah. uh, to hide their presence to make sure they can carry out their malicious objectives. Um, and actually having you know, a banker Trojan on your phone is probably like one of the worst things that can happen to you because you use your phone for probably most people now exclusively for all kinds of uh, yeah. banking. You're getting your uh, maybe potentially second factor there, um, either through an authentication app or maybe through some kind of a text message or something like that. Um, you're probably, you know, there's a lot of banking apps, legitimate ones, uh, where you're checking your account thing. So if you have a, a banker on your phone these days, it's probably actually just as bad or even maybe even worse than having it on your computer. Um, you know, in the yesteryear of like five years ago. Um, so um, it's, it's interesting how, again, just like the other story that Bindu mentioned, you know, the adversaries haven't really given up. They're continuing to develop malware that targets like the new platforms where people are now computing. Um, so they're, they're going to where the users are uh, and continuing to target them. Um, the only thing I'm always curious is, you know, how do you get this malware? Was there anything in the, in the story about how you would get Anubis? Yeah, so, and again, it, uh, it goes back to the same method of delivery pretty much. It's an email. It's a very well-crafted email um, that says, you know, here's the, here's the receipt that you requested or here's the, you know, the document or the, the billing form, billing statement that you requested. Um, and it's, it's essentially it's an APK file, right, that you're opening up whenever you execute the PDF that they sent you or whatever. And what will pop up on your screen is, is, is an actual message that like you would get in an Android phone. You know, you want to allow this application to make the following changes or allow the following access to your device. And what's hard to, to, to kind of distinguish this from something good is it's actually using the Google Play Protect 
um, you know, front on the screen. So you kind of trust Google Play Protect. Uh, it kind of verifies the applications that you're downloading from the Play Store. Um, so you're kind of like, oh, it's Google Play Protect. I'm okay, you know, sure, you can have access to my device and whatever it is that you need. Um, so it presents this false sense of security. And, you know, as we know from, uh, from like you said, this is originally like a banking Trojan. Um, what it would normally do, right, under this is it would put a fake login page to whichever app you're trying to mm -hmm. open. And it would allow you to insert your login data and it would take that and send it off to their C2s. Um, and on a day like, in a, in a crazy time like we're in now, everybody's looking on their phones because especially with stimulus checks coming, with people's, you know, paychecks coming in, everybody's a little more leery and, and concerned with, okay, how much do I have this month? Or they're, they're waiting for that check to clear. So they're always looking at their phone, always logging into their, you know, their financial 401k stuff, their banking app, their, you know, car payment app, whatever, and just putting in their credentials, their 2FA, um, like you mentioned. So uh, I think this is like a crazy time for this kind of malware. Um, and, and I'm sure they're getting quite a few hits in their, you know, dashboard or, you know, control panel, so to speak, um, and creating quite the, uh, the amount of compromised devices, which is scary. Yeah, and we used to think, you know, all of these sort of malware spread was more at the enterprise level, right? And now to think right. that it is really, you know, uh, getting to that consumer space. And it's also being pretty targeted, you know, given the audience. And, you know, we say this a lot, right? Like security is everybody's responsibility. Hey, you know, this is not just tech talk, right? This is not just something that, you know, you should be into only if you're into malware analysis and so on. You know, I think this is uh, a great thing where you think about you know all the three stories that we've seen today at the end of the day i think it is today it is everybody's responsibility and you know we are using technology i see a lot of enterprises that have digitally transformed and you know want their entire workforce working remotely now but then they're all going with the BOIOD you know, phone phenomenon, right? But the thing is, you know, you can't afford to give everybody your corporate device and, you know, you don't have all of the security mechanisms in there. You know, the same, you know, Trojan that is going after the banking app today, you know, it's the same device that is going to be used to access maybe one of your corporate applications, you know, and this is not, you know, it's not the end user violating it with the knowledge that you know they want to do something malicious it is completely to your point about google protect google play protect you think that you're downloading something that is protected right and then you're thinking okay you know i use this phone for all my financial things i'm just going to log in you know to one of my work applications and you know that's where you know sort of the crossing of the boundaries happened right so we're going to see more and more of this you know because the remote workforce is not going to go back anytime soon at least a subsect of it may still be remote you know i think about all of the call center employees that are you know using their phones you know to conduct work and you know to be able to use that same phone for their own personal applications as well this is going to be a larger threat you know while the malware today looks to be okay you know specifically only a banking trojan tomorrow it might be something else yeah, and uh, and Stan, I'm going to put you on the spot a little here since you said you were uh, re reversing this just yesterday or doing some work on it. Um, uh, you know, I'm reading this. I have an iPhone. Uh, I kind of have a little trust in the apps I download, although not all of them. But uh, we've had there have been times where they've you know compromised a few. But uh, how would you go about like what would be the best route to kind of uh, maybe you're not protecting your Android device, 
but like, um, I mean, forget like AV. I know there's plenty of AV products you can download for Android, but I also know those are compromised a lot of the time. So what would you feel is like the best route to protecting yeah, yourself? Yeah, definitely don't use your phone. <laughs> you know, if you're going to use your phone for banking, kind of make a conscious decision that that's what you're going to do with that phone. You shouldn't be downloading a lot of like weird apps or games on your phone. So I think a lot of people don't think about that. You know, there's all these like, you know, little little games that you can use to spend the time, words with friends or whatever. There's also a lot of copycat apps where, you know, somebody copies almost the entire source code of the app of the legitimate one and adds a little Trojan to it. So if you're gonna use an Android, I think it's a little bit less of a problem with the in the iPhone space because um, things do tend to go through the, uh, uh, a rigor, more rigorous process, I think, with, with Apple. Uh, but with Android, you can download apps from off-market or, or, or off-site. So I would encourage people oh, actually right. not to do that. There's also a setting in your Android device um, that allows you to, um, you know, debug the device. So if you plug in like a USB stick, I mean, sorry, if you plug it into your computer on USB, I would actually encourage most people to disable these debug settings uh, so that your ADB, you know, port isn't open. I would also encourage right, people okay. to disable the setting that allows you to bring in apps from an off uh, site if you want to be security conscious. Now, if you want to have a device for playing and trying things, I would actually have a separate device for that. You know, there's plenty okay. of, uh, you know, I think phones are both more expensive than before, but also you probably have like an old phone lying around. You can probably use that for gaming. Use your other phone, you know, just for um, like official things like um, your banking and things like that. It's very similar to like if you're at home and you have like a computer that you solely use for banking and not really internet browsing, this way, you know that that computer is as, as good as it can be. You know, you're probably not going to get a drive-by or anything like that. Um, and one thing that I think is really good in, in the Google ecosphere, I think it's the same might be true in Apple, is they do have the Google Play Protect. And actually, I know they do have a, a really good security team that goes and then investigates all these different apps. And... Um, uh, I forget if it's a setting you have to enable. I think with the newer models, it's actually automatic. That basically any app that's detected as suspicious or malicious on your phone, it'll get automatically deleted uh, or cleaned up oh. through this Google Play Protect that is on most of the newer Android devices, especially the, the official ones uh, from Google. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone to look at that you know, download the legitimate Play Protect app if you don't have it on your distribution or on your phone. Uh, make sure you're applying um, uh, upgrades, uh, so firmware patches and updates uh, to your device, because I do, I do see them come out pretty frequently, so you're definitely gonna wanna do that. Uh, and definitely enable probably the, the Play Protect app on your phone so that it can be scanning in the background for malicious activity. And then finally, don't download weird stuff. <laughs> don't <Yeah>. download weird <laughs> stuff. If something looks sketchy or you're getting it from, yeah. you know, not the Play Store, then you just have to think twice about it. You have to kind of think about it. Do I, you know, just like, you know, do I want to go to this bad neighborhood or something like that? Is that, is it worth it for you that you have all your banking apps on this phone or your two-factor authentication? Do you really want to take your clean device and, and put some game on it for five minutes 
that you're not really even sure what it is or what benefit it has, um, maybe it's better to use a separate device for things like that. So a long well, answer, yeah. but I think it rings <laughs> yeah, true from one. all the things we already know about protecting our computers. Hey everyone, uh, this is Dan Nurlov, and I have the internet weather uh, for this week. So uh, in internet weather, what we try to do is we try to understand what kind of cyber threats there are out there on the internet and um, uh, measure them on a weekly basis, just to keep track of maybe exploits or vulnerabilities that are up and coming. So one of the ways we do that is by looking at scanning activity across the internet. Um, and uh, we measure scanning activity in two ways. The first way, is by looking at the number of scan records uh, per port. So how many uh, times, that it, you know, how many scan flows did we observe for a particular port? Um, so this chart here represents the, the top 10 ports uh, that are scanned basically the most uh, by uh, pretty much everyone on the internet. Uh, and it, it's by volume of the scanning activity. Uh, so, uh, Week to week, we kind of look at the differences here. Uh, and actually, if we look at this week, there's not uh, too much uh, new activity uh, that's worth mentioning. Uh, we could see, you know, port 23, TCP, is one of the top containers. That's Telnet. We know there's a lot of IoT-based botnets out there scanning for Telnet. Uh, we could see port 445 TCP, which is generally associated with the SMB protocol, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, the eternal blue exploitation um, related to WannaCry and some other older Trojans as well. Um, and a variety of other ports here, very common. We see them week to week. Um, so what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll kind of advance to the next slide. Well, we see uh, the, the same scanning activity, but this time it's measured a little bit differently. Uh, in, in this chart, we're looking at uh, the most sources probing. So this is the same list of ports organized, but now by how many IP addresses are con concurrently uh, scanning for this. And actually, we use this uh, correlated scanning activity as a measurement of botnets out there. Um, so we all know about botnets, you guys, you know, we talk about it on ThreatTrack all the time, uh, but this is our way to automatically uh, measure that um, and kind of study what are the up-and-coming ports. Um, so this week you could see uh, there's two interesting ports, uh, 8291 TCP and 8728 TCP. They've moved up quite significantly from last week in terms of the amount of uh, scan records or scan flows. Uh, that we detect uh, based on the number of IP addresses doing it all at once. And I was just curious, uh, George Bindo, have you ever, uh, are you familiar with these ports? Yeah, 8291 rings a bell to Microtech, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, they, and uh, they, always, they always make their way to the top somehow. <laughs> exactly, yes, in one way or another, these definitely are always in the top. And they're definitely worth speaking about. Um, so. You know, whereas the other ports, they're pretty generic, like port 22 TCP, that's SSH, and we see a lot of brute forcing activity there from a lot of different adversaries. Um, you know, 80 is a common web port, and there's lots of people looking for vulnerabilities there. Uh, but like you noted, 8291 is so unique um, that we can actually relate it to a specific type of device or a specific type of protocol, and you were right, uh, it's Microtech. What's interesting is that uh, 8728 TCP is also Microtech. Um, and I think we've covered this several times on ThreatTrack, as you mentioned. Uh, so let's see uh, what's new with those ports uh, this week. 
since they're so high. So looking at um, just charts of activity um, uh, based on the last 30 days, you could see that there are peaks, obviously, of scanning uh, in the last 30 days and also uh, periods when there is no scanning on these ports, uh, which is consistent with, you know, things, you know, we have talked about it in the past on Threat Track because it is something that comes up and then the activity dies down, and, and here it is again. <clears throat> and so you can see there's millions of flow records per hour um, in the last, um, uh, it looks like, a uh, few days, actually. Um, and uh, if you look at the number of IP addresses that are doing the scanning, you see a very similar, uh, that's the bottom chart, you, very, you see very similar increases. So when there are more IP address scanning, there are more scan flows out there. Uh, on these ports. Um, the red here is port 8291 TCP and the blue is 8728 TCP and both of them are associated with management ports um, on Microtech devices. So over the past few times where we covered these ports on ThreatTrack, I've actually been collecting um, uh, the IP addresses uh, that are engaged in the scanning and then mapping them out geographically uh, on like where is the scanning coming from. Um, so this is a view from December 10th and we had about um, 15,000 IP addresses I had collected that were scanning in the last you know four hours or something like that um, and I superimposed them on this map and you could see there are definitely hot spots of where the scanning activity comes from and um, there's probably a lot of reasons or ways to explain that. Um, you know, why is it um, hotspots in certain areas versus others? Uh, but you could see that there's definitely uh, in Southeast Asia, in India, in uh, South America, Central America, Europe, North Africa there, the Middle East, there are a ton of devices um, scanning from these areas. Um, and as we look um, through the different times we've done threat track, the picture hasn't really changed much. Yes, there's, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, you know, some hotspots flare up a little bit more based on the scanning activity during those hours um, and others die down, uh, but it's pretty much the same picture. Uh, and you could see this is uh, basically, uh, this is the latest uh, view of it, um, and the activity has stayed consistent. Um, there's lots of devices. Um, I actually looked in the last, I think to generate this view, in the last four hours, I try to figure out how many IP addresses, unique IP addresses are doing the scanning. And there were about 95,000 IP addresses. So I had to limit the view to just the IP addresses that were the loudest. They were doing more than 2,000 attempts to scan in the last four, um, like four hours. Um, and from those, there were 27,000. And I randomly pick, um, you know, basically a, a third of those IPs uh, to map out here. Um, so. Uh, it's interesting. It's obviously a global problem. Uh, not so much in the United States, I would say, uh, with this type of threat, uh, but definitely abroad, it does seem to be um, uh, much more pronounced, uh, the activity that's coming out of there. So this is most likely is a botnet. This botnet is obviously looking for vulnerabilities on uh, on these Microtech management ports. And so the question is, what are they doing? So looking at our honeypot a little bit, uh, you could see that uh, on port 8728, there's a protocol where the adversaries try to uh, maybe log in or these bots are trying to log in and probably try to brute force uh, their way into uh, these devices. 
Um, there's a slightly different protocol on A291. It's based on uh, a web port, so the devices, uh, the uh, the bots are a little bit smarter in how they communicate with the honeypot. But ultimately, if you study this a little bit more and you try to figure out, well, are there any tools out there that'll help you do this kind of scanning or brute forcing, you'll actually come to this really cool tool called MK Brutus. And this tool is written by some pen testers um, to help in pen testing engagement. And uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm not saying this is the tool that is responsible for this activity, but this is actually uh, an example of how adversaries uh, can do the same thing. And I believe, you know, the adversaries have figured out something similar and are now basically um, scanning the internet, you know, looking for more of these devices that are compromised. So then the question is, you know, are those devices themselves microtech routers or what are they? Um, and we can actually use Shodan for that. So Shodan is um, a site that scans pretty much every IP address on the internet with some exclusions, of course, and it tries to look for common ports uh, that are open on devices um, and then just records them in a big giant database and try to keep it up to date as much as possible. Um, it's actually much more pronounced than that, I'm sure. Uh, so what did I do? So I took 50 RAM from these 10,000 IP addresses, I took 50 random IPs and I just looked them up in Shodan. I said, hey, Shodan, what do you have for this IP address? What ports is it open on? Um, to hopefully help me figure out what kind of device um, this might be. Um, so when I did that, most of the devices didn't have any records in Shodan. And it could be a variety of reasons for that. Um, uh, but a few of them were actually related to uh, Microtech in one way or another. And a whole bunch of them were actually related to um, routers uh, that are not necessarily Microtech. Um, it could be like a DVR um, or just another router, like maybe a D-Link or something like that. Um, so that I found that to be interesting. Now, of course, you should expect to see like, uh, you know, most of the stuff that you find in Shodan should be a router actually, because, uh, you know, most people connect to the internet through a router, right? So you should see that a lot, but the fact that um, these management ports are open actually leaves these devices um, open to vulnerability, uh, brute force attack. And you could see these are some of the common ports that were open on 50 of these devices. Um, and I imagine, you know, the rest of these devices probably, uh, you know, if I was gonna do, you know, 500 or 1,000 of these devices, if I randomly picked them, I'm sure that the, the pie chart would look very similar um, and would have very similar other ports uh, that would point in the direction, you know, of a Microtech device or some other router that adversaries are taking advantage of. Um, so to conclude, uh, you know, the botnet activity is kind of strong uh, on these ports. It's obvious that some botnet operator has control of thousands of IP addresses all over the world and is looking to expand their operation by brute forcing basically into uh, microtech devices and, and scanning for them all over the place. Um, so as usual, we'll continue to keep an eye on it um, and try to understand uh, this impact. Um, but yeah, do you guys have any question? Yeah, so Stan, uh, not necessarily related to microtech, but uh, I was intrigued when you showed me that Eternal Blue is still uh, you know, one of, uh, you know, the activity that you're still seeing. So WannaCry is now, you know, years, you know, old, right? But uh, we're still seeing uh, this vulnerability fairly open. Yes, unfortunately, uh, there are lots of devices that are um, in the older generation uh, that are still vulnerable and open to this. And more so, they're actually scanning, um, you know, for other devices to infect. 
Uh, so this is how we're able to see them. There's about, um, I forget the latest numbers, um, but let's say 30 to 40,000 devices every hour, you know, that we see actively engaged in scanning on port 445 CCP. Probably five to 10,000 of them are the older config or warm, um, but the rest likely comprise, you know, this, um, uh, uh, the, the WannaCry worm that was spreading. I think that was 2017 or something like that. Yeah, it was, yeah. So, you know, that that caught my attention because I'm thinking, you know, we've spoken about this port and, you know, this activity for a while and it's still there. And given, you know, the current, uh, you know, influx of newer machines going to be out there with, you know, outdated operating systems, not patched, we're probably going to see an uptick in this area. Right, so. Yes, you know, it's amazing. Once a worm is created, it actually tends to stay around for many, many years. You know, it does die down eventually, but it, it stays around. There's always seems to be, you know, two to five devices at least. Uh, maybe 10, maybe 20 that are still yeah. infected um, with different things. In fact, I think maybe four or five episodes ago on ThreatTrack, we talked about an old, old Trojan that was spreading on port 445 TCP that even predated Conficker using a really old ancient vulnerability. And there are still 10 to 20 devices out there on the internet with this really, really old operating system of Windows running there <laughs> and attempting to spread this worm. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. You know, once the adversaries kind of automate this stuff and put it out there, it tends to live for a little while. All right. Well, I think that's, uh, that's it for the Internet weather, and I hope everyone enjoyed that. Um, if you guys have any uh, comments about any of the ports uh, that you saw here today, uh, if you have any additional information about maybe some of the botnets that are involved, uh, feel free to uh, comment in the section down below. Uh, tell us what you think about this activity. And maybe you have some other interesting ports that you'd like us to explore a little bit more that aren't in the top 10 or 20. Um, maybe we can do that as well. So go ahead and comment um, and uh, uh, we'll do our best to investigate it. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.